Hello, I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast, the podcast where we investigate what's driving the news, not breaking news. And this week, we're going inside number 10 to tell the story of a power couple. And given the surprise news of a wedding in Westminster last week of Boris Johnson and his bride, Carrie Simmons, I'll forgive you for thinking that that's the power couple that I mean. But no. I'm handing over to my colleague, Matt Dancona, a journalist and a commentator with an incredible ability to pull back the curtain on what really goes on behind the scenes in Westminster. And this week, he's telling a fascinating story about Manira Mirza, a woman who was a former member of the Revolutionary Communist Party, who is now a leading figure in Boris Johnson's government, and her husband, a man called Dougie Smith, who used to run sex parties, but is now a big deal in the Conservative Party. So join us to hear how this unlikely couple forged a new kind of politics and a new kind of culture war. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How sure are you that you know the people who really run Britain? The people with true influence and authority? The power brokers that actually decide what gets done and what doesn't? Who's up and who's down? Do you think you can name them? I'm going to tell you a story about two of the most important individuals in British politics today. Two people I'm pretty sure you've never heard of. I'm Matt Dancona and I've been looking into a married couple at the very apex of government a genuinely powerful husband and wife with considerable influence over the future of the country, whose names, unless you're a political obsessive, will almost certainly mean nothing to you. In 2020, when Boris Johnson was asked by Grazia magazine to name the five most influential women in his career, one was Bodicea, one was his grandmother, and another was Manira Mirza, now head of the Downing Street Policy Unit. Her husband is Douglas Smith, or Dougie as he is universally known, whose job is, well, we'll get to that later. Quietly, but with absolute focus, they have become an extraordinarily powerful force, almost a single person. Dagira, as one cabinet minister put it. And their story is in many ways an unexpected, circuitous and surprising one, in which a personal relationship has converged with a moment of historic opportunity in a way that few could have foreseen. Manira Mirza began her political journey on the far left, in the milieu of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Douglas Smith started as a firebrand of the hard libertarian right in the now-defunct Federation of Conservative Students. Yet Brexit and the patronage of Boris Johnson have brought them together to number 10 and positions of great authority. And their shared interests in culture wars, the battles over identity, heritage and who runs culture-defining institutions, means that they are set to be even more influential in the PM's plans for political strategy after the pandemic. It's a case study in the morphing landscape of networked, digitised, populist politics, 
and the speed with which, in the 2020s, individuals who would previously have been seen as intriguing outliers or fringe figures can end up at the very heart of power. A great Westminster power couple? Yes and no. As you'll see from their story, these are two people with little interest in bright lights and fancy parties. The power they seek and have obtained is altogether more significant and far-reaching, and the story of their marriage is a parable of how that power works in our era. To reduce it to the most basic level, Dougie handles the form and Munira takes care of the content. He is the most powerful figure in today's Conservative Party when it comes to drawing up lists of parliamentary candidates and increasingly vetting public appointments. She, meanwhile, is drawing up a policy grid for Boris Johnson's premiership after Covid, especially on the increasingly heated battlefront of culture and identity. As one of their Downing Street colleagues put it to me, you don't see them huddling in the corridors that much, they know each other's minds and intentions completely, and though they're both polite you cross them at your peril. I've spoken to more than 20 ministers, Downing Street officials, Conservative activists and others who know the couple. On this much, all are agreed. They have a strong marriage, they are both clever and experienced, they retain the worldview of outsiders and they hate publicity with a passion. This absolute shunning of the limelight wasn't always the rule, at least for Manira Mirza. Here she is in October 2017, attacking Theresa May's race disparity audit. There is discrimination and there is racism in this country, but I don't think it helps anyone to exaggerate the degree of racism or the degree of discrimination. And uh, some of the disparities that they're picking out, I think, can be explained by many other factors which affect all groups, not just ethnic groups. When she became Prime Minister in July 2016, Theresa May had named racial inequality as one of the burning injustices that needed to be addressed as a matter of national urgency. It means we believe in a union, not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from. That means fighting against the burning injustice that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a white... Manira Mirza has never denied the reality of racism and has experienced it herself. But with a background in the arts, and as Boris Johnson's Deputy Mayor of London between 2008 and 2016, she had come to believe that a grievance industry was arising around ethnic identity that would compound the very problems it claimed it would solve. Here she is in an interview with the Trigonometry podcast in December 2018. But I think the idea that our differences define us, that they should be things that determine policy, that we should... Uh, treat people differently because of those cultural differences. I think that can lead us into all sorts of dead ends and it can be quite divisive. It ends up, I think, making something which, you know, is a fact in society, we are different, but it makes it much more rigid, makes it much more um, difficult for people to transcend those identities. She had grown sceptical of the idea of institutional racism, the notion that bigotry is entrenched in systems, structures and unconscious bias rather than just malicious individuals. And she was frustrated by the repeated mentions of white privilege. 
I mean, it, 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 it's such an ahistoric term. It doesn't mean anything really anymore. Crucial to her argument then as now was the proposal that those advancing the claims of identity politics and the so-called critical race theory that underpins it were really seeking control over others. That's the thing that has always um, aggravated me about the sort of anti-racism, that it's essentially telling people, no, your instincts, your general instinct to kind of treat everybody equally and the same, there's something wrong with that mm. and you have to think carefully about before you speak. And it's a form of policing. In other words, the whole thing was about power. Let's scroll back to Manira Mirza's upbringing. She was born in May 1978 of British-Pakistani parents, both immigrants to this country, in the northern town of Oldham in Greater Manchester. Her mother was a part-time Urdu teacher, her father a factory worker. Growing up, she confronted racism in the working-class town, but she also recalls acts of kindness by her late father's white colleagues. A lot of his colleagues were white working-class Oldermers, and every year um, one of them, called Tom, would ring up on Christmas Day and wish, you know, wish him and the family happy Christmas. And, you know, he knew that we were a Muslim family, but you know, he rang up because it, it was the nice thing to do. You know, he wanted to make an effort. And, um, and even when my, my dad passed away, he would ring up in the years that followed and just, just to say that. And it, it, the way that I interpreted it, it was, a, it was a very kind gesture, and he wanted my dad to feel welcome, you know. We were an Asian family in Oldham. And it, to me, you know, it felt like a kind thing to do, a very human thing to do. She excelled academically at her local comprehensive and won a place to read English at Oxford, where she gained a first-class degree. She followed this up with an MA and a PhD in sociology at the University of Kent. Kent matters because going there brought her into contact with a new mentor, Professor Frank Furedi, a specialist in the study of risk, social anxiety and the dynamics of populism. He was also the founder of the Revolutionary Communist Party, a Trotskyite splinter group that broke off from the Revolutionary Communist Group in 1978. By the time Anira Mirza met Frank Furedi, the RCP was already withering on the vine and, like all far-left movements, was still coping with the hammer blow of the end of the Cold War and the discrediting of revolutionary communism. Many of the figures associated with the party, a grouperskule might be a more accurate name for it, were attracted by libertarianism and opposition to the authoritarianism that they believed was becoming dominant in the modernising Labour Party. Manira Mirza, who still describes herself as a liberal, was drawn to what she saw as a free-thinking milieu expressed in the pages of its controversial magazine Living Marxism. Not surprisingly, the RCP is resented to this day for its support for the 1993 IRA bombings in Warrington and its outrageous claims that Western media had deliberately exaggerated genocidal crimes by Serbs against Bosnian Muslims. All the same, from its ranks came a surprising number of figures who went on to be influential in different ways. Claire Fox, who was elected as an MEP for the Brexit party and now sits in the House of Lords as Baroness Fox of Buckley. I... Claire, Baroness Fox of Buckley, do swear by Almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Her Mick Hume was a Times columnist for 10 years and was founder editor of the provocative libertarian magazine Spiked that is now edited by his fellow former RCP comrade Brendan O'Neill, who is rarely off our screens as a contrarian television commentator. There's no suggestion that Manira Mirza ever shared the RCP's more shocking positions on the IRA or Serb atrocities. 
but she was undoubtedly interested in and influenced by its strong defence of personal liberties and of free speech, and by its hostility to the inertia and vested interests in institutions. After a spell working at the Royal Society of Arts in London, she went to work as the development director of the modernising conservative think tank Policy Exchange, founded in 2002 after Michael Portillo's failed bid to win the leadership of the Tory party and his campaign to steer it in a socially liberal direction. This was a very different time in the culture of conservative politics. The party was, as ever, divided over Europe, but the idea of what was not yet called Brexit was under discussion only at the fringes of the party. The energy in the party lay with those who were arguing for Conservatives to become more socially liberal, more open to the spirit of live and let live, and more in tune with modern Britain. Remember, this was many years before what is now rather lazily called wokeness. The party was simply being urged by groups like Policy Exchange to loosen up and embrace the pluralism and social complexity of the 21st century country it aspired to govern. In the same building in Storey's Gate opposite Parliament, was another organisation that was closely connected to policy exchange in political objectives, ethos and personnel, named Sea Change. Formed in 2002 by the head of Portillo's leadership campaign and future party chair Francis Maud, Sea Change was a campaigning body rather than a think tank, set up to advance the cause of modernisation in the Tory movement and at its grassroots. In charge was Douglas Smith, then a 40-something Tory activist and campaigner. According to one of their colleagues at the time, inasmuch as sparks can ever fly at a Tory think tank, they did. Dougie and Manira became a couple and it was clear that it was the real deal, a proper love match. Marriage and a son followed. But who was the suitor that had captured Manira Mears's heart? Dougie Smith is something of a legend in Tory circles. He keeps away from the cameras and the microphones and prefers to operate in the shadows of political life. Even his age, ridiculously, is a bit of a mystery. The best one of his closest friends could offer was 57 or 58. He is known to summon the party as Mr Wolf, a reference to the all-purpose fixer played by Harvey Keitel in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, the guy the gangsters call up to sort out an unsortable problem. As it happens, I got to know Dougie quite well in the 90s when I was writing about Northern Ireland and the unionist opposition to the concessions that John Major was feared to be promising to the IRA. A graduate of St Andrews, he invariably wore an Aran sweater and jeans rather than the pinstripe suits then favoured by young fogey Tories. He was a self-described outsider who said that there was no intrinsic reason why the leader of the Conservative Party shouldn't have the pink hair of a punk. Sticking with colours, he was also deeply devoted to the Orangemen of Northern Ireland and the Unionist cause, which he thought was in deep peril. I knew that he had been a senior figure in the Federation of Conservative Students, a member of its libertarian right faction and a serious operator. I knew that Dougie had done work for David Hart, the maverick property tycoon who had years before advised Margaret Thatcher during the miners' strike, helping to sabotage National Union of Mine Workers' picket lines. I also knew that he had once spent a night in the cells after an altercation with a rival FCS figure, a legend that was sometimes elevated, quite falsely, to a conviction for arson. But such legends were of a piece with the image he cultivated. He was known around political London as a bruiser and a force to be reckoned with. As I was researching this story, one former minister told me, I never crossed him, I didn't fancy getting a Glasgow kiss. 
I have to say that the most menacing thing Dougie ever said to me was that I couldn't be totally trusted because I had started my journalistic career at the progressive human rights magazine Index on Censorship, which he suspected of having, as he put it, ideologically unsound affiliations. Having worked with David Hart, it was natural enough for him to work for another highly political plutocrat, Sir James Goldsmith, who had set up the Referendum Party in 1994, with what was then regarded as the eccentric idea of holding a public vote to decide whether Britain should remain a member of the European Union. James Goldsmith, who's got nothing to be smug about, and I would like to say, I would like to say that 1,500 votes is a derisory total. And we... And we That's James Goldsmith tonight. on the night of the 1997 general election, joyfully celebrating his part as the referendum party's candidate in Putney in ousting the former Tory cabinet minister David Mellor from the seat Mellor had held for 18 years. It was pure mischief-making. The formerly Conservative seat was captured by New Labour, which was the story of the whole night on which Tony Blair won his first landslide. But isn't all this ancient history? Well, not exactly. Dougie and his patron James Goldsmith were exotic, occasionally menacing figures on the political scene, always good to talk to and gossip with. But I was never quite sure how seriously to take it all. And I'll be the first to admit, I would never have guessed in a million years that Goldsmith's vision of a referendum to leave the EU would come to pass, that the electorate would vote to leave, and that Dougie Smith would, in due course, become one of the most powerful figures in the post-Brexit Conservative regime. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. That's the BBC's David Dimbleby early on June the 24th, 2016, announcing the victory of Vote Leave. A few hours later, David Cameron announced his decision to resign as Prime Minister. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. And soon enough, Theresa May took over. Where was Dougie Smith? In a cupboard at Party HQ, says one of May's advisers. We could never quite get rid of him. He wasn't central under Theresa, but he was never quite out either. One senior minister describes him as a sort of tough guy version of Woody Allen Zelig. For some reason, you can never quite fathom. He's always there, always around. This is an important strand of our story the value of stamina and the rewards that come to those who wait. As one cabinet minister puts it, Dougie's trick has been to make himself indispensable. He'll put up with the occasional demotion because he knows the party needs him. It is always tempting to overestimate the importance of ideology in a political career and to underestimate the necessity of sheer bloody-minded persistence. Why has Dougie Smith survived as a speechwriter under David Cameron, a party HQ activist under Theresa May, and now a much more powerful figure under Boris Johnson. His career has endured setbacks and changes in leadership that would have finished off a less stubborn and assiduous political figure. In fact, most thought his career was over before it had really begun. How do you solve a crime in reverse? 
when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, the kind of things you need to be talking about before you go with your partner is, uh, well, you know, do you want to go all the way? Um, Sometimes the man isn't happy um, to share his wife, for example. In June 2003, in the first months of his work at the campaign group Sea Change, Dougie went to see his boss, Francis Maud. Maud noted that he was unusually apprehensive. What would you say if I told you I was gay, Francis? Dougie asked. I'd be surprised, replied Maud, but I wouldn't mind at all. Right, said Dougie. Well, I hope you don't mind now when I tell you that I'm a swinger. I'm into swinging. In fact, he wasn't just into swinging. He was one of the organisers of Fever, a sex party business that hosted lavish orgies at plush central London homes for carefully selected under-40 couples and single women. As always, Dougie Smith was vetting people and drawing up lists, though, in this case, for once... The party whose interests he was serving was not the Conservative variety. Francis Maud was amused rather than angry, though he had to handle the concerns of a few Quaker trustees at the Joseph Rowntree Trust, which had just agreed to help fund sea change. His task was not made easier by the fact that the Sunday Times had got hold of the story and ran it across the top of its front page under the headline, Top Tory aide is King of the Urban Swingers. Yet, defying the laws of political gravity... Dougie Smith was not finished off by this disclosure. Why? Researching this story, a few people suggested that he has dirt on lots of big Tory beasts. And it is certainly true that at least one serving cabinet minister went along to one of Dougie's parties before becoming a politician. Though to be fair, it's also true that this person made a very swift exit when they realised what kind of party it was. But most of the people I talked to dismissed this theory of Dougie Smith as the untouchable keyholder to all the Tory skeleton cupboards. It misses the point, they said, and it exaggerates the salacious contents of his little black book. Instead, he got through the crisis of the fever story for two reasons. The first and most important was that he wasn't remotely ashamed. Just as Manira Mirza had enjoyed the free-thinking intellectual culture of the revolutionary Communist Party gang, So Dougie Smith relished the sexual freedom of the fever world. In their very different ways, they shared a belief that you shouldn't be told what to do by Puritans, by the politically correct, by any self-appointed moral police. Second, Dougie survived the sex party storm by simply not giving up, and specifically by making himself useful to the group of ambitious modernisers led by David Cameron, writing speeches, helping develop what would become a successful leadership campaign in 2005. He was never absolutely central in those days, recalls one Cameroon who went on to become a senior member of the Tory Lib Dem coalition. But he was never absent either. It's a rare talent. He came into his own during the parliamentary expenses scandal of 2009, in which MPs were reported to have charged the taxpayer for, among other things, moat cleaning, a floating duck house and swimming pool maintenance. Well, now back to our main report tonight, the leak of Cabinet Minister's expenses. Heather Brook, the campaigner who won the High Court battle to release MPs' expenses, and Sir Stuart Bell, the Labour MP for Middlesbrough, are here in the studio. Uh, Stuart Bell, I mean, 
just as you're here, before we get on to the question of what was revealed, do you think you should do one thing that no MPs had the courage to do today and just simply apologise for the morass? David Cameron's view was that this was a matter of public ethics and trust rather than the precise letter of the parliamentary rules, which were, as it turned out, amazingly flexible. So someone had to deal with each case and tell those Conservative MPs who were filling the news pages what was acceptable and what wasn't, and to twist arms sufficiently to make sure the money was repaid. A tricky job. Who are you going to call? Dougie the Ghostbuster, of course, or in this case, the Sleazebuster. With painstaking care and just the right level of silk and menace, Dougie Smith did the rounds of the MPs in question, explaining to them, case by case, exactly what had to be done to clear the air. According to a senior member of Cameron's shadow cabinet at the time, nobody else could have carried it off. Nobody else had all the information in his head, the reputation, the right mixture of charm and scariness. This is the heart of the matter. Today, if you ask even the most senior members of Boris Johnson's government exactly what Dougie Smith does or even what his job title is, they don't know, beyond the fact that he liaises at the highest level between Party HQ and Number 10. What they do grasp is how useful he is. If a member of the public is going to appear in a party political broadcast and needs to be checked out, Dougie gets in a car and checks him out. If a candidate for a public position needs to be quietly vetted, he is the point man. If someone's CV has suspicious gaps, he hits the phone, scours social media going back years and does the due diligence thoroughly. Above all, if you want a seat, if you have ambitions to pursue a career in Conservative parliamentary politics, you have to get on the right side of Dougie Smith. As a senior member of the party machine puts it, look, if Dougie has a role model, it's probably Lyndon Johnson, who said that the first rule of politics is to learn how to count. I mean, he knows who to call, who to visit, who to pressure, how to secure the necessary local votes. For almost two decades, he has acquired an unparalleled knowledge of who runs Tory constituency associations. Not just the chairman, but the vice chairman, the councillors and the parish weathermakers who can make or break a candidate's chance in a winnable seat. Which brings us to his greatest triumph to date. Good evening and welcome to the BBC News at six from Downing Street, where Boris Johnson has promised to repay the trust of voters after leading the Conservatives to an extraordinary election victory. An 80-seat majority, the first really solid Tory victory since 1987 and Labour's worst results since 1935. Not a bad night's work. As one very senior source puts it, Dominic Cummings likes people to think that he was the person who won the 2019 general election, but that's bollocks. Other than Boris, there were two people who really mattered. One was Isaac Levido, who ran strategy. He's gone now. And the other was Dougie. It was essential to Boris Johnson that he get himself a new House of Commons as soon as possible, one completely unlike the 2017-19 to cohort that had finished off Theresa May in the Brexit wars. He needed a majority of biddable MPs, and Dougie Smith was the man to fix it. While Manira Mirza was closely involved with drawing up the election manifesto, her husband was busily trying to turn the divided Conservative Parliamentary Party into the united Boris Party. In Wantage, David Johnston, a comprehensive educated Brexiteer and champion of social mobility, was installed as successor MP to the arch-Remainer Ed Vasey, who's now in the Lords. The seat of devises in Wiltshire was sorted for Danny Kruger, the Prime Minister's political secretary, fellow Etonian and vote-leave comrade. 
As for Andrew Griffith, the PM's chief business advisor, whose London townhouse was used as Johnson's leadership campaign headquarters, well, he slotted in nicely to the constituency of Arundel and South Downs. As I heard time and again, it sure does help to have him on your side. Conversely, if he blacklisted you, well, forget about that career as a Tory MP and future minister. And sometimes the candidates don't even know that they're being helped. That's how discreet all these operations are. Dougie Smith doesn't care whether the media knows that he fixed things for Boris Johnson. He cares that Boris Johnson knows. So there, in early 2020, was Prime Minister Johnson, on top of the world, with Brexit finally done, planning to build on his conquest of Labour's Red Wall with a huge programme of levelling up, when suddenly... From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. The PM announces the first national lockdown. Normal politics stops in its tracks and most of the government's big plans to weaponise its big Commons majority are put on hold. Cummings was always going to be point man on Covid, says one Downing Street source, and the next election was probably four years away. The truth is there wasn't a vast amount for Manira and Dougie to do in the early stages of the crisis, except hang on in there and hope that when the pandemic ended, they would still be valued. Another number 10 aide puts it thus. Don was rampant at this point and his crew of vote-leave cronies were using up most of the brainpower in number 10. It looked for a while as if the policy unit under Manira would be a bit of a shell, you know, very much the second 11. But others say that this isn't the whole story. Johnson had learned to rely upon Manira at City Hall as much more than an advisor on culture and education. She was, as the PM himself put it, a powerful nonsense detector unfailingly civil but equally unfailing in her intolerance of BS and a Prime Minister has to sift through plenty of that. More than one Downing Street staffer told me that Johnson would often run key decisions connected to the pandemic past her as someone who was not involved with the day-to-day decision-making on Covid but whom he absolutely trusted. It was in the first months of the pandemic that I realised that Manira isn't really a traditional policy chief, says one cabinet minister. She's more like a muse or a Boris whisperer. She's that important. It helped a lot that she got on with Carrie Simmons and that she and Dougie were regarded by the Prime Minister and his fiancée as totally loyal and, unlike Dominic Cummings, totally uninterested in publicity. But that was about to change in the most unexpected fashion, the pace of the story forced by a horror on the other side of the Atlantic. Now turning to the breaking news of the morning, violent protests continuing across the country, people taking to the streets demanding justice for George Floyd. It was a story that stopped the world in its tracks, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police on May the 25th, 2020, captured on phone video, a horrifically modern lynching of a 46-year-old black man in police custody seen by billions on their screens. In Downing Street, all energies were focused on the unwinding of the first national lockdown and what would turn out to be the disaster of the test, trace and isolate system. Not everyone saw how important the George Floyd murder was immediately, says one minister, but Boris sensed it would be huge. He was still convalescing from his own bout with Covid and watching a lot of news. He got it. The other person who sensed what was coming was Manira. This was far from the first case of a black person being killed by US police, but this time it had taken place during a pandemic when all the world was in a state of partial paralysis confined to their homes by the virus. In this country, as in the US, the mood was pretty febrile too, all of which made for a powerful political chemistry. As one Downing Street source puts it, suddenly there were protests and rallies all over the world. Black Lives Matter was a lot more than a slogan or a hashtag now. 
the statue of Edward Colston was chucked into the harbour in Bristol, it was impossible to do nothing. Manira Mirza already knew that she wanted to use a fair chunk of her time in Downing Street addressing the questions raised by identity politics. Her husband was less exercised by the detail of critical race theory or obscure scholarly arguments about systemic racism. But he understood that if a culture war had to be fought, then the right people needed to be in place to fight it. That, after all, was his job. The biggest gathering London has seen in weeks, and one of the most passionate. What do we want? What do we want? The pace of the story had been forced, in other words. The government had to do something, and fast. Boris Johnson's instinct, more than one source put it to me, was that this was a second front opening in a year of battles. If Don was his main general against Covid, one number 10 official says, then Manera was the obvious choice to take charge of the cultural front. She and the PM agreed it was essential to respond quickly and to show that the government grasped the scale of popular feeling. But equally, Boris Johnson was deeply shocked and angered by the attacks on his hero Winston Churchill, about whom he had written a best-selling biography. Winston Churchill is a perfect example of someone who embodies both the good of fighting on the right side of history against Hitler and the bad in terms of his racism and the way he used his privilege, power and influence to cause untold misery and atrocities on non-white nations. The lawyer and racial equality activist Dr Shola Mos Shogbamimu in a BBC News report on June 8, 2020. The statue of Churchill in Parliament Square had been vandalised during a protest with the words, is a racist, spray-painted below the wartime leader's name. The Prime Minister and Manira Mirza were of the same mind. The voters might put up with the statue of a little-known slave trader like Edward Colston being torn down. In fact, plenty of them would go along with it. But the mass of the electorate would draw the line at a full-scale attack on Churchill and see no obvious connection between the hideous police murder of a black man in Minneapolis and the hatred of the left for a British Prime Minister who had stood fast against Hitler. The statue of, of Winston Churchill, who is a national hero, has had to be boarded up uh, for fear of violent attack. And that, to me, is both absurd and and wrong. They've already made hundreds of arrests in, uh, in the last few, uh, few days. By June the 15th, Boris Johnson was ready to announce the outline of the plan. There would be a commission on racial injustice, but it would be more than an exercise in self-flagellation or a rubber stamp on all the main principles of critical race theory. Johnson was determined to weigh up the progress that had been made on racial injustice against the work that still clearly needed to be done. And things really are changing. And you're seeing uh, you know, young, young black kids now doing better in some of the most difficult subjects in school uh, than, than they were ever before. You're seeing more going to top universities. We need to start telling that story. There was never any question in the PM's mind that the commission should be set up by Munira Mirza. And David Lammy, the Shadow Justice Secretary, who had crossed swords with her in 2017 over his own review into racial inequality in the criminal justice system, was particularly unimpressed. It's clear that this was dreamed up yesterday on the back of a fag packet, that Boris is just beginning to get over the detail of these successive reviews, 
that this is another data exercise, that what we need is action, what we need is will. And it's not clear, frankly, that he and some of his advisors really believe this stuff because they haven't really moved on it for months. And that's not just my review, that's many reviews. Suddenly, Munir Amirza's name was being mentioned daily in news bulletins and on the homepage of news sites, precisely the opposite of how she and Dougie prefer to operate away from the limelight. On June the 17th, the PM was even put on the spot about her revolutionary communist past in the Commons by the Scottish Nationalist MP Martin Doherty Hughes. Uh, the journey of Munira Mirza from the pages of the Srebrenica denying living Marxism and the revolutionary communist party into the heart of number 10 has not gone unnoticed, Mr Speaker. On a Monday, the Prime Minister appointed them to lead the commission, the government's commission for racial inequality, and it was greeted with some disbelief given their well-known views on the matter. So I wonder, Mr Speaker, to kind of Prime Minister tell us today, does he agree with Ms Mirza that previous inquiries have fostered a culture of grievance within minority communities? Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, I, I am a huge admirer of uh, Dr Munir Mirza, who is a brilliant uh, thinker about these issues, and we are certainly going to proceed with a new cross-governmental uh, commission to look at uh, racism and discrimination and after parliamentary questions came the protests in the street. Manura Mesa must go! Manura Mesa must go! Manura Mesa must go! Manura Mesa must go! That's the BLM activist Iman Ayton on June the 20th at a rally in central London, calling for the head of the Number 10 policy unit to be sacked, probably the first time that somebody holding that particular office has been named in such a way by an angry crowd at a public protest. As one friend of the couple puts it, I think it was beginning to dawn on Munira and Dougie what they, and especially she, had got themselves into. It was very intense and it would shake up anyone, but in the end it only made her more determined. In July, Dr Tony Sewell, the educational consultant who had previously chaired Boris Johnson's education inquiry when he was Mayor of London, was named as head of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. What we already know is that there has been a lot of uh, work already done in this area, And so what we want to do really is get a focus on this. We particularly want to look at the race and ethnic um, disparities unit work and make sure that we now move to some sort of action on that. But essentially, it is is an exercise in trying to understand uh, and getting the government to understand the matters behind maybe some of the recent protests and also beginning to get a grip. As Sewell and his fellow commissioners got to work, Number 10 braced for the second wave of the virus and then plunged into a period of serious internal political turbulence, which culminated in the departure in November of Dominic Cummings and his chief lieutenant, the Downing Street Director of Communications, Lee Kane. But even as the Kent variant of the virus swept across the land, the culture wars continued. For a start, Oliver Dowden, the Culture Secretary, breached the hitherto sacred arm's-length principle in the art sector, warning museums and galleries that he expected them to abide by the government's retain-and-explain position, which is to say, keeping statues or artefacts in place, but providing warts-and-all historical material to provide context where necessary. So I do worry that there is this, this sort of culture going on at the moment. Looking back in shame on our history... It's, of course, there are, there are mixed stories, but we should celebrate that strength. And I, I'm sending this message out very clearly to our cultural institutions. Of course, they should be uh, talking about their history. And I always say, 
keep stuff in place, keep your monuments in place and use them to explain our history. Don't hide it away. Weak nations try and obliterate their history. Many of those who'd known Oliver Dowden as David Cameron's deputy chief of staff, a Tory moderate and a Remainer, were surprised by his new stance as a tough guy woke buster. Were Munira Mirza and Dougie Smith pulling the strings? Certainly, Dougie Smith was involved in the -the behind-the-scenes row that led to the resignation in February of Sir Charles Dunstan as chair of the Royal Museum's Greenwich. Oliver Dowden, it emerged, had refused to confirm the reappointment as a trustee of Aminul Haq, a Bangladeshi-British expert on decolonising the academic curriculum. And Charles Dunstan had walked rather than put up with the interference of a culture warrior minister. It's tempting to say that Dowden was simply following a script written by Manira Mirza and her husband, But the truth is more subtle. As one former cabinet minister puts it, look, most culture secretaries sink without trace. Oliver knows this is his shot and he sees the way the wind is blowing in number 10. It's not so much that he's being told to attack wokeness as that he knows that's the way to get on and get promoted. One Downing Street source describes Manira Mirza as a software designer and Dougie Smith as the man who fixes the computers. And that's a good analogy. On this basis, Dowden was simply making use of the app, Mirza 2021, and if he needed a bit of technical support, well, he knew who to call, didn't he? In fact, friends of Dougie Smith say he was rattled by the strength of feeling provoked by the Royal Museum's affair. It was becoming clearer by the day that fighting culture wars is not in fact all that easy, and that what looks like a cunning plan today can turn out to be a serious blunder tomorrow. The next test of this was to come soon enough, when the Sewell Commission delivered its findings. Crucially, the government decided to pre-brief some of the most newsworthy lines in the 258-page document before its official release on March 31st, notably its recommendation that the term BAME for Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic be ditched, its claim that educational attainment was improving across most ethnic groups, and above all, its declaration that there was no evidence of institutional racism in the UK. The firestorm, especially on social media, was predictable, fierce and forced Tony Sewell into a defensive position on the airwaves. No, no, no one denies and no one in the report is saying racism doesn't exist. You know, we, we, we found anecdotal evidence of this. However, what we did find was the evidence of actual institutional racism. No, that wasn't there. We didn't find that in our report. What we have seen is that the term institutional racism is, is sometimes wrongly applied. Some of those cited in the report complained that their work had been used selectively to fit a clear agenda. One notorious passage, hastily amended, even claimed that the slave period was not just about profit and suffering. Speaking on LBC, David Lammy delivered a withering denunciation of the report. Let's not forget that this report was rushed out in response to the overwhelming desire for change after the murder of George Floyd. Where thousands of people rallied for the black men, women and children suffering, still excluded in this country because of institutional racism. This report could have been a turning point and a moment to come together. Instead, it has chosen to divide us once more and keep us debating the existence of racism rather than doing anything about it. According to the conventional rules of politics, the Sewell report had been an embarrassing failure, 
amateurish, too provocative, shallow, when it should have been nuanced and widely dismissed? Did this spell the end of the quiet power couple's ascendancy, the end, so to speak, of Dugira? Certainly there were some who hoped so. Dan Rosenfield, the civil servant brought in as the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff on January the 1st, was no fan of Mnira Mirza or indeed of her husband. He thought the work of the policy unit was thin and expected her influence to wane. In fact, the opposite has happened. For a start, other than Andrew Gilligan, the Prime Minister's transport advisor, she is the last person standing of the City Hall gang that Boris Johnson imported to Downing Street when he became Prime Minister. The 71-year-old Eddie Lister, now elevated to the Lords, and one of the PM's most trusted confidants, finally left in January. Ben Gascoigne, a long-standing aide to Johnson since his time as London Mayor, recently resigned as his political secretary. It is important to understand how formative to Boris Johnson's sense of tribalism and loyalty his period as mayor truly was. It is no accident that he has recruited Simon Finn, now Baroness Finn, who was closely involved in his first campaign for City Hall as his deputy chief of staff in number 10. All of which is to say he is more rather than less dependent upon Munira Mirza than he was a year ago. As one of Johnson's closest allies says, I can tell you one thing, she's a lot more powerful than bloody Dan Rosenfield, whatever he may think. Second, when the dust had settled after the debacle of the Sewell report, Boris Johnson concluded that it was not the straightforward shambles it had appeared. Yes, the comms had been a disaster and many people had been outraged by the Commission's findings, but populist governments such as this one thrive on outrage. As the vaccine rollout proceeded, the PM grew increasingly confident that the country would be back to something resembling normality by the autumn and he became increasingly persuaded that the Sewell report had only been a warm-up match for a tournament he could win. In the end, says one source, Boris thinks that he and Manira are in the same place on this as the vast majority of the public, and that every time there's another row about statues or Churchill or white privilege, another Labour seat becomes winnable. And who will be sorting out the candidates for such seats? Why, none other than Dougie Smith. There are also some big positions in the cultural world to fill. The chairmanship of the National Gallery, for instance, recently vacated by Tony Hall. The equivalent post at the Royal Opera House. Richard Lambert will reach the end of his second term as chair of the British Museum next year. And of course, the Royal Museum's Greenwich needs a successor to Sir Charles Dunstan. Unofficially or otherwise, you can bet that Dougie will be involved in all these significant changes that lie ahead. Top of the government's agenda post-pandemic will of course be economic recovery, jobs and so-called building back better. But culture wars have been described to me as the B-plot of the Boris movie, which is to say the second but still important narrative that will keep the viewers glued to their screens and it is claimed on the side of the Prime Minister. There's the practical business of filling the new cultural elite with people sympathetic to Boris Johnson's way of doing things. And there's the political business of filling the airwaves and social media with a conflict you think you can win. When it comes to culture wars, says one senior minister, even when we lose in the media, we win with the public. Keir Starmer has no answer to this stuff because his party is so crazily woke. In this context, Manira Mirza is incredibly important. As a British-Asian woman from a working-class background, famed for her civility and academic prowess, she helps senior Tories feel that they have permission to pursue this cultural battle against identity politics and to take on social justice movements such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too. It helps them to rebut the charge that this is just gentrified skinhead strategy or the politics of the football terraces. It's a common-sense, intellectually coherent position that reflects what the great mass of people feel, especially outside elite London. 
and it helps them to explain why Boris Johnson is more in tune with the electorate than the social justice warriors of the left. Naturally, this whole thesis and set of assumptions have not yet been fully tested by the cultural skirmishes of the past year, but they will be after the pandemic subsides and the government gets stuck into this terrain, the baiting of social justice movements and a march through the institutions creating a new cohort of pro-Boris loyalists in the cultural apparat. Imagine Dougie's delight to take but one example that his old FCS comrade Sir Robbie Gibb has been appointed as a trustee of the beleaguered BBC. At the end of all this, glitters a much greater prize, a general election that delivers an even larger Conservative victory. After Labour's trouncing in last month's local elections and the Hartlepool by-election, I am told that party chiefs are aiming for, as they put it, a Blair-scale majority of at least 120. An astonishing ambition for a party that has already been in power for 11 years, yet the Conservative government of 2021 bears almost no resemblance to the Cameron coalition that entered Downing Street in 2010. It is the child of Brexit, unashamedly populist, and a magnet for outsiders and outliers like Munira Mirza and Dougie Smith. For now at least, they are at the very heart of power. Their marriage, one of Westminster's most solid, is also one of the foundations of the government, symbolic of the PM's taste for mavericks, his insistence upon absolute loyalty and his refusal to play by the rules. How many couples get to make such a claim? How many marriages follow such an extraordinary path? Romance, as ever, takes many forms. Thanks so much for listening this week. This episode was written by Matt Dancona and the producer was Claudia Williams with sound design by James Rapson. The editor was Pete Hoskins. And if you enjoyed this episode, then I think you should join Tortoise. It's the newsroom where I work, where Matt works and where we make this podcast every week. We're a bunch of journalists trying to do things differently, opening up and inviting our members, hopefully soon to be you, to help shape our ideas and our work. You can get involved in tons of different ways. All you need to do is go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50, that's my name, B-A-S-I-A-5-0 for a special discounted price. Thank you and we'll see you next week. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.